I'd like us to open up our Bibles together this morning. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 27 through 30 in a message that I have titled, Keeping Our Lives and Relationships Holy. We're in a series of messages, verse by verse, through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. These, these chapters bring us the first sermon of Jesus that's recorded for us, a very famous sermon that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. In our sermon series, it's called Jesus Teaches About. We're learning through this series many deep theological points that Jesus is making to his disciples and to the other hearers of his original message. And we're hearing and learning how to properly live and maintain our Christian lives. And we've come to a topic this morning that sometimes we read and we think, oh, that, that doesn't really apply to me. This morning we see why Jesus is very specific when he gives instructions to his disciples about adultery. I want you to see which, what we read. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Join me in verse number 27. Jesus says this, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery, but I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This week, Jesus is expanding on the seventh commandment. Just like Jesus connected murder to anger that we saw last week, here Jesus is also making a connection between adultery and lust. I want to start out by writing this down this morning. We've got a few points to go over. For those of you just joining us, you'll find on the left-hand side of your bulletin some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm going to give you those fill-in-the-blanks, and the answers will be up here on the big screen. Point number one in your notes this morning, the sin of adultery starts with the thoughts that lead to action. The sin of adultery starts with the thoughts that lead to action. Sometimes we look at this verse and we think, you know what, that applies to everyone except us. That, that, that's, that's not, it doesn't really mean much to me. And sometimes we can look at it when you say, okay, well, because of the pronouns that Jesus is using, that means he's only talking to men. See, that, that's, that's not really the case. Jesus is using male pronouns because he's teaching his disciples, which happen to all be men, right? This instruction is not limiting the lesson on adultery and the lesson on lust only to men. In verse number 28, Jesus says, he says, but I say anyone, he says, I say anyone who looks at a woman in lust. In our modern culture, it's actually perversely accepted for, for women to look at other women in, in lust. And, and before we can move forward, in our study this morning, it's important for us to realize that Jesus is one talking to everyone here. He's giving this lesson to all people. But we do need to have a, a good definition of the word adultery before we can move forward in our understanding. Biblically, adultery is referred to as a sexual relationship between a married man with a married or betrothed woman who is not his spouse. 
We're going to be working under a biblical definition this morning. Most other sexual sin is going to fall into the category of fornication, and we're going to speak on that another time. And that, that basically is going to lead to anything. It's going to be any sexual interaction outside of the biblical confines of marriage. We need to remember that the biblical definition of marriage is this. It is between one man and one woman for life. Working from this definition, we can now see that Jesus is telling us that we have already committed adultery in our heart when we even look at or lust over a woman and women for men. If we're looking at and lusting over somebody who is not our spouse. Ladies, I don't want you to think that you're in the clear because it's not a pronoun in here that speaks to, to women. This would also mean that we're already committing adultery in our heart if you're looking at another man with lust, right? You're looking at another man that is not your spouse. Unfortunately, our modern-day culture celebrates adultery. Our modern-day culture accepts biblical adultery as part of life. But that's not the way that it was when Jesus was giving this instruction to the 12 disciples. I want you to see what they knew about adultery. I want you to see how their culture was vastly different than our culture. Let's look at the laws that they lived under. Let's look at the culture that, that they managed under. We're going to put up Leviticus chapter 20, verse number 10, up on the big screen. It says this, If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22 says this, If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Pretty intense, right? If a man and a woman were caught in adultery, they would literally be taken outside of the city gates and stoned to death. That would be the sentence. Jesus is saying that this crime against God that perverts the sexual relationship that God has created, he says it's not a crime that starts in bed. He says this is a crime that starts in your head. He's saying that this, it doesn't start with the action. It starts with the thought. That's what's getting us in trouble. Some of you might remember the the song that the kids would sing in children's church, it would go something like this. It would say, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, for the Father up above is looking down. Do you hear it? Can you hear the song? He's looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. The second verse, it says, oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. And the third verse, it says, be careful, little tongues, what you say. And then we get to the fourth verse, it says, be careful, little hands, what you do. And finally, we hear, be careful, little feet, where you go. And the final verse, it says, be careful, little mind, what you think. Be careful, little mind, what you think. Because the Father up above is looking down in love. Be careful, little mind, what you think think. See, we teach this to our kids, and sometimes when we get into our adulthood, we forget. 
that it's not the final action, but it's the early thought. Adultery is a sin that ruins lives. Adultery destroys more than simply the lives that it touches. It it destroys more than the, the life of the adulterer. It ruins other lives as well. Just as we saw last week when we were studying when we were when we were studying anger and murder we saw that it destroys other lives adultery ruins families it ruins the trust that a wife has with her husband it can ruin the trust that a husband has with his wife it could ruin communication between a married couple it could ruin the way that a son looks at a father It could ruin the way that a daughter looks at a mother. And it ruins the way that we look at the godly gift of sex. It ruins friendships. It ruins lifelong relationships. Why did God give us this rule? Because we are his children and he wants to protect us from ruin. See, God is our father cares so much about us that he even gives us rules that that sometimes we struggle with and sometimes we struggle to find why is it you've given me this rule and when we think about it when when because he loves us because he doesn't want us to get hurt and it goes even deeper because it would it could ruin more than just the lives of the people that you know we actually have seen in history that adultery can ruin nations It can go more than just as deep as your family. We're going to take a trip into the Old Testament for a moment. Go into the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to start in verse number 2. We're going to see an entire nation that is brought down. It says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed, and he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David, this is King David, sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. He lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. King David fell into temptation. He fell and committed adultery, and it was, a, it was a terrible sin and action against God, just like it is in our world. However, I want you to see how this sin of adultery gets worse for David and how it's going to get worse for his family and how it's going to get worse for a nation that he governs all because of his disobedience to the rules that God created for our marriages. Remember that Jesus is telling us that the sin of adultery is extended all the way, they, all the way back to the simple look, right? What if David had recognized his sin at that first glance? What if he had recognized it and stopped it then? So we already know that Bathsheba is now pregnant with David's child, and I want you to see how worse this gets. Bathsheba's husband is actually fighting in war. He's, in, he's, he's one of the soldiers in David's army. 
and the army is out fighting right now. And so David has a problem because Bathsheba is pregnant. And so what David's going to do is start to try and cover up a problem. They didn't have back then, they didn't have any uh, Maury show paternity tests or Jerry Springer show paternity tests. So he thinks, okay, you know what? I can try and get away with this. So he calls and he says, I want you to send Uriah back from the battlefield and send him home. So Uriah comes and goes to see the king, goes to see King David, and, and, and they've known each other. David says, you know what? I want you to go and spend a couple of nights at home, go spend some time with your wife, have some quality time with your wife. You know, you've done a great job. Uriah says, you know what? I'm not going home to be with my wife. Not while the men are out fighting. I'm not going to do it. So David has a problem because his plan's not working. So the next day he says, I'm going to bring Uriah over to dinner and I'm going to get him drunk and then I'm going to send him home to be with his wife. And Uriah still doesn't go for it. He says, I'm just going to sleep here at the gate of the, of the palace, but I'm not going home to be with my wife. David comes up with another idea to solve the problem, and he writes a letter, puts it in Uriah's bag. He says, I want you to take this letter back to the general when you go into the battlefield. So Uriah goes back, and he takes this letter with him, and he gives it to the general, and the general opens up this letter that David had written, and the letter says, I want you to take Uriah and put him on the front lines of the battle, and then I want you to pull all your men back so that he'll be killed. That's exactly what happens. So the commander pulls all of the men back from the battle, and Uriah is killed. And so now we have an escalation in the cover-up. Can you recognize escalations in cover-ups and sin in our own lives? Hasn't that happened before? We've tried, right? Can you see it getting worse? Can you see what's happened in David's life? Is it started out with a glance and then it turned into an adulterous uh, relationship and then there's a pregnancy and now there's even more sin, but God sees it all. God's actually sending Nathan the prophet to go and have a chat with David. See, Nathan comes to David to call him out. And tell him exactly what God is saying about this relationship. I want you to hear the punishment that God is putting on David through Nathan the prophet. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 10. It says, From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secrecy, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. See, God told David that his own household is now going to be chaos. And that's exactly what's about to happen. What's happening 
And as bad as it is now, it's even going to get worse. In the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13, one of David's sons rapes one of David's daughters. One of his other sons starts going after the son that that raped a daughter to, to avenge that relationship. The entire family is now a mess. See, we see that this lust that led to adultery led to murder. It's led to rape and incest and and God's discipline. Eventually, one of David's sons would begin to track down his father as the king starts running from his very own son. Everything that David had comes crumbling down. David took part in a very few minutes of adulterated pleasure, and those moments changed the course of his entire life for the worst. It was a few moments that changed everything. See, before the sin, David was a very brave warrior. This is David, the kid who brought down Goliath with a stone. The one who led military conquests. The one who, who, who brought nations together. And now, he is reduced to running from his son and hiding. And it all started with a glance. He brought this trouble on his own household. And, and great trouble not only to him, but to his children to all of his extended family, to those who were underneath him, to the military, and to an entire kingdom. See, it hurts more than just the people who are involved. It could bring down households. This sin can bring down entire nations. When God gave the commandment, When he gave the command that men should not commit adultery, he knew that this temptation, if we were to fall to this temptation, that that Satan's scheme now is going to win, that that the scheme is going to lead to ruin. That's why God gave us this rule, is to protect us from ruin. Can't we be thankful that our God, our Father, has given us rules to live by to protect us? Aren't rules amazing? When we look back and we can thank God, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for that. We must as husbands and wives and Christians work to keep our marriages pure. And we must as those who are single and not yet married, we we must be able to keep ourselves pure for God and to keep ourselves pure for those who God has put in our path. That person of the opposite sex that we might not know of yet, that God is already preparing their hearts for you and your hearts for them, it's our job to keep ourselves pure for that person. Amen? There are people that we don't even know about yet that our sin could affect down the road. And it all starts with what's going on in our head and where we allow our mind to take our feet. I want to talk to the men for a moment. Men, it is absolutely our job to lead in keeping our marriages pure. 
It's our job. We have to take that responsibility. But it's also our job to lead and keep our family lives spiritually pure. If we are to be the spiritual leader in our home, and men, that is your job, that is our job, then we need to be a model of spiritual purity within our home. Because, guys, it's not just you and I that could fall into temptation. It's not just you and I that can fall into spiritual temptation. It's also our wives. It's our kids. It's our moms and dads. It's our neighbors. It's, it's anyone who has faith in Jesus is in jeopardy of falling into spiritual temptation. Everyone you know who has faith is susceptible. That leads us to point number two in your notes this morning. Christians are continually living with the danger of falling into spiritual adultery. Christians are continually living with the danger of falling into spiritual adultery. All throughout the Bible, the church is referred to as being a bride. We're referred to as being the bride of Christ. That's also the way that God saw His people. That's the way that He saw His chosen people of Israel. He saw them as His bride. He saw them as, I'm going to be your husband and you're going to be my wife. And time after time after time after time, His bride continued to commit spiritual adultery. When God led the Israelites in the promised land, it was a harsh command, but he said, I want you to wipe everyone out. I don't want you to leave anyone in this land alive because I don't want you to be influenced by their gods. He wanted to protect his bride from foreign gods. He wanted to keep his bride pure. What happened was that the Israelites did not wipe out all of the people of the promised land. And eventually the Israelites started to worship other gods. It started out slow. It actually started out with a, with a glance. It was a glance towards another people and their gods. And at first that glance seems kind of innocent. But then that glance goes a little bit further to where Israel is kind of, kind of sneaking around a little bit, kind of going behind God's back and, and now is spending a little bit more time with, with, another, with another tribe's gods. And it ends up in full-blown spiritual adultery. And there were massive consequences to the spiritual adultery that Israel had to pay for their fling with other gods. Because of their spiritual adultery, God's strong nation was reduced to rubble. Because of their spiritual adultery, future generations, they didn't know what to believe. There was no foundation anymore. When the nation of Judah was exiled into Babylon, many of God's people started to serve the gods of Babylon. There was no spiritual bearing on the people anymore. The people had let sin creep in and they told themselves, they said, it's okay. I guess it's okay. See, what had happened is that glance had become socially acceptable. 
And then the action became socially acceptable. And after a while, nobody could remember God's direction anymore. They were like a ship that that has torn sails and a broken anchor. And they're simply at the mercy of the currents, taking them wherever the currents want to take them. And nobody can control the ship because nobody is following God's plan anymore. If you and I are at the mercy of the currents, if we're at the mercy of the current modern day thinking, or maybe the current of acceptability, or maybe it's the current idea of correctness, if we're at the mercy of the current thought of unbiblical tolerance, then we are living out of control. We are living out of God's control. And if we're living outside of God's control, then that means that we are living inside man's control, and that is a very scary place to be living. Amen? In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 3, verse number 8, we read this. She saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery, but that treacherous sister Judah had no fear, and now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution. To put adultery in a more modern day language, what if we were to use the term cheating on? What if we were to say spiritual adultery happens when we're cheating on God? It's that time when we put someone else or something else in God's place of honor. And we're kind of cheating on God, right? That's spiritual adultery. Adultery in a marriage is when we put somebody else first in a place that they don't belong. When we put somebody where our husband or wife belongs. Adultery in our spiritual life is when we put something else where only God belongs. It leads to the question of where is God in your life? Is he first? Often we can answer the question, often we can answer that question by determining where it is that we are. Where are we on Sunday morning? Where are we midweek when our brothers and sisters are coming together to to study God's word and to learn? Are we with God? What is first? See, the way that marriage works and grows is when a husband and a wife spend quality time with each other and they create communication with each other. They create trust with each other. They create a bond with each other. If we are truly the bride of Christ, then we need to spend time with Jesus. Amen? We need to spend time in communication with Jesus. We need to spend time in trust with Jesus, building our trust. We need to spend time building our trust in Jesus, but would it be fair to say that we need to spend time letting Jesus build trust in us? See, there's two sides to that relationship, right? We've all heard of Bridezilla. Bridezilla is the soon-to-be bride who has spent way too much money on everything in the wedding. 
I know you guys can't see this, but as I look out, I see uh, uh, ladies who are smiling and men who are not right now. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. So she's the one that has spent countless hours on the wedding planning spending, making sure everything is perfect. Some of these weddings can be tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars. The bridesmaids are in perfect dresses. Hers is perfect because she's had it tailored like nine times. Tried on 50 dresses. The dinner plates look amazing. The food is awesome. Every single detail is planned out perfectly. She's been planning this wedding since she was six. Every single detail has been gone over and has been adjusted and has been perfected. And then the wedding day comes and the bride is beautiful and everything goes flawlessly. And it's such a memorable wedding that's going to be in her scrapbook forever. But you know what happens tomorrow? It's all over. The wedding is all done. It happens every single day. Couples plan for years for a perfect wedding, but they do nothing to prepare for a godly marriage. There's so much time that goes into focusing on one day, but there's couples who often forget and don't pay attention yet to preparing for day two. Because day number two is actually day number one of an entire marriage that God has brought together and He wants to create this relationship between husband and wife, but between husband and wife and Lord and Savior. See, if couples would to put as much time and attention into their marriage as they do into their wedding, I think that we would see more marriages last past the temptations of adultery. And you say, Pastor, how do we do this? First, you're saying physical temptation, and that's bad enough, and, and now you're throwing in spiritual temptation. How do we manage that through all of this murky water that we live in in our everyday lives Thankfully, once again, like he continues to do all throughout the Bible, Jesus answers the question before we even answer it, before we even ask it. He answers, he tells us how to do it. Come back with me into Matthew chapter 5, or in verse number 29. Here's the instruction. Here's the how that Jesus says, this is how you do it. He says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. Point number three in your notes this morning. Creating a purposeful separation from temptation is our greatest weapon. Creating a purposeful separation from temptation is our greatest weapon. Now, I don't want you to take Jesus literally here. Because Jesus is actually speaking in hyperbole. He's speaking in, in a, a, a literary device. He is using an exaggeration to make a point. There have been people through history 
who have literally cut off their hands. I am telling you that Jesus is using this as an example, as an exaggeration to make his point. But he is using hands and eyes purposefully here because he knows that the majority of our sin comes through our hands or it comes through our eyes. He is specifically speaking to hands and eyes. He's saying, I want you to be careful, little eyes, what you see. And I want you to be careful, little hands, what you touch. If it is our eyes that are causing us to sin, then we need to be careful about what our eyes are looking at. Carefulness and being careful needs, means that we need to start building barriers, right? That we, need to, that we need to be able to purposefully create separation from the temptation. We need to put that weapon into place. We need to use that weapon because Jesus knows, he says, it's better for you to create that wall. It's better for you to create that separation than to fall to that temptation. It would be better for you to go without your right hand. It would literally mean in the original translation or in the original wording, if you're right-handed, it's better to go without your right hand. If you're left-handed, it's better to go without your left hand. In our world, let's bring this into our society it might be better for us to go without our cell phones than to walk around with the temptation of pornography in our pockets. It would be better for us to put up walls around relationships and maybe have to block out those areas of our lives that we fall into a weakness than to let our sin gain a foothold and come between us and our husbands or us and our wives or us and God. Separation from our sinful world is certainly not a bad thing. Separation from those areas where, where we know that we fall, and that we know that our weaknesses are, it is absolutely approved by Jesus to keep us safe, for us to create purposeful separation. Psalm 119, verse number 11 says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's what happens. I want to put God's word here and I want to let this word be my guide. And if that guides me to create purposeful separation, that's okay because God's first, right? There are absolutely going to be temptations in our world that lead us away from Jesus. Satan knows these. He knows these temptations. He uses these temptations. See, he's the one that is providing them because he knows our weaknesses. Our weaknesses are his first offense they need to be our first defense we need to be able to stand up and say i know that i am weak here i need to create a boundary i need to create a separation from the world and the temptation in myself because that's what it's going to take to protect myself my heart and my marriage being strong in the lord being 
purposeful in staying away from the areas in our lives that we have weakness is so important to our relationship with Jesus. It leads to the final points in your, point in your notes this morning. Point number four is this. Our first life priority is to be faithful to our covenant relationship with Jesus. Our first life priority is to be faithful to our covenant relationship with Jesus. Our relationship with God is a covenant relationship. Covenant means a promise. It's a commitment. It is a it is a relationship that is built on trust. It is very similar. It is a, a marriage is a covenant relationship. No one walks up to the altar to commit to be married halfway. No one has ever heard a minister say, to June 12th do you part. We don't do that, right? It is a commitment. It is a covenant relationship. When we become a Christian, when we come to Christ, we come into a covenant relationship with our Lord and Savior. We say, I am committed to Jesus. A marriage is not a short-term commitment. It is a lifelong commitment to one another. It is a covenant relationship. It's the same relationship that we come to Jesus with. Is a covenant. It's a promised relationship. To put somebody else first, in this case, it's to put Jesus first. It's a hierarchy of our lives. God first. Wife, spouse, family. God first. Anything else that is in God's position is causing us to commit a spiritual adultery. Our whole message this morning so far has been talking about us, and it's been looking at this relationship from our side. Our side of the marriage relationship with Jesus. But just for a moment, I want you to look at our relationship through the eyes of Jesus. I want you to remember that Jesus has always put us first. I want you to remember that Jesus has always been faithful to us. That Jesus has never, ever, ever cheated on us. His side of the relationship is always faithful. Great is His faithfulness. Amen? He's never strayed away from us. We have to remember, though, when we stray away from the relationship, probably cries, right? There's certainly a lot of hurt. It's like that broken heart that you had when you were in junior high or high school, that relationship with your first boyfriend or girlfriend, that, that first broken heart that you had. kind of Jesus's heart when when we stray right if we look at it through his eyes 
like we can break his heart every single time that we stray. If our relationship with Jesus is like a marriage, how many tears does he cry for us? We can also look at the good times, though. We can look back at this marriage relationship with Jesus. How many times does he smile in pure joy from the gifts that he gets out of his relationship with us? You think about the times that that we get pure joy out of the relationship that we have with Jesus, right? He's getting that same joy out of the relationship with us. Because you got to remember that Jesus comes into this marriage with us just as excited as we are to come into this relationship with Him. Are we living up to our end of the faithful relationship with Jesus? Unlike your high school girlfriend or high school boyfriend, Jesus is never going to give you back your letterman jacket. He's not going to do it. He's never going to... He's never going to destroy that mixtape that you made. I'm talking to Gen X here. I'm sorry, millennials, and that you don't get the mixtape reference. But <laughs> He's never going to give you back your sweatshirt. See, Jesus is always going to be waiting on us to come home. He is absolutely faithful at all times. Isn't it amazing that the faithfulness of Jesus does not depend on our actions? Jesus is still there. He is absolutely still there. And he's going to be there. I wonder today where we are in our relationship with Christ. Because he's not going anywhere. If you're here this morning and you're wondering where he is, I'll tell you where he is. He's the same place that he was. He still has his hand out. And although he's hurt, he never turns his back. And he's always going to be right there waiting for us. It might be time to come back. Let's pray.